Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. As we begin a new year, I think God has brought us to the passage that he wants us to preach. If you're a guest with us, welcome, whether online or in person. There's a couple of distinctives we do here as a church. Um, one is we work through sections of the Bible a chapter at a time. And so next week, if you came and worship with us, we'll be in Psalm 64. The next week, Psalm 65, and so on. Uh, the, the other thing we do is we respond to the message through communion every week. Uh, we, we, we practice what we call close communion. There is open communion and invites anybody lost or saved to come to it. There is closed communion that's practiced only by those that are members of the church. And there's a close communion. That is, if you are redeemed, you are welcome to the table. And uh, that's what we practice here. So if you're a guest here and you're born again, uh, you're welcome to come to the table and as we respond. So just wanted to give a little bit of explanation there. Uh, the words here, even today, even though... The word longing is not in this psalm. Um, the whole psalm, including what we just got through singing, um, should have that word, the, the longing and the desire to be satisfied. And so let us stand as we read God's word together. Psalm 63, if you look at the, the description at the top in, in most of our Bibles, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life, they shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be portioned for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in the Lord. All who swear by him shall exult. And the mouth of liars will be stopped. This is the word of God. Pray with me. So God, we have gathered ourselves in this place that we have set apart. For the redeemed to gather as your people, to experience your presence, to be equipped for the work of ministry that you have given every one of us to do. We have gathered here, some of us excited and some of us weary, and you meet us all right where we are. And so, Lord, we give thanks for that. We ask you for you to pour out your spirit on us now as we hear your word, that we be encouraged, not discouraged, that those who would be faint would gain strength, that those who are thirsty would be satisfied, 
And those who do not know what we are talking about, Lord, you would visit them in the Spirit of God since you would create this new life in them, a life that longs for you. We cannot do that, God. We are not the creators, and we create life in no person, but you can. And so, Lord, we ask for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever been lost in the woods? I have a couple of times. And uh, my daddy always told me, there's one important reality if you get lost in the woods. Don't wander around. Don't start walking. We own about 50 acres right behind the house. And when we were young, you say you could go about 12, 15, 20 feet into the woods and, and be disoriented, and you might as well be two miles in the woods. You're lost. And so the key to that is just to be still, uh, to wait. That's the hard part. Because, see, when you're lost and stuck in a place you don't want to be, it's, it's tempting to want to get out any way you can. To just go into fear and panic and start walking and wandering in a frantic state. I've done that before in the woods too. It didn't turn out too well. You see, fear drives wandering. But fear does not drive the rescuer. I got, I got disoriented in the swamp down in South Carolina. Waited a little bit too long to come out of the tree stand. Got disoriented as I come down the tree stand. And I was looking for those little dots that help you get out. You know, you shine the flashlight and you can see the dots. I couldn't find the dots. The reason why I couldn't find the dots was because the dots were over here and I was looking over here. I started going around trying to find the dots and I'd walk out a little bit, come back to my stand, walk out a little bit, come back to my stand. And I decided to say, Stephen, you better just be still. And it wasn't long. It was that out of darkness light moment uh, to when I saw the light come in over the edge of the wood line. And I got myself back oriented. I was able, you see, that guy knew the woods, and I didn't. And so what I needed to do was wait on the rescuer, because he wasn't driven by fear. If I'd have started walking, I'd have just walked the wrong way, deeper into the swamp. Our lives can be this way. What Jesus is teaching us here, what God is teaching us, what David is teaching us, is, is there, we need to wait, but there is a type of waiting here. Awaiting in joy. So how do we do that? When God uh, sometimes places us in uncomfortable places. Uh, we said last week, let us not walk in darkness, but let us wait in joy. I, I would almost say, let us not wander in darkness, but let us wait in joy. Sometimes you just need to quit trying to do things on your own and see what the Lord has said and wait on Him. That's what this is. This psalm is a confident trust. All the laments that have come before it, this is here intentionally. He's still in a bad situation. We're going to talk about that. But there's a confidence, a trust in times of great adversity, which is he finds himself in. So a, a couple of questions. What does it mean to seek God? What does it mean to seek God? Main idea, David expresses his longing for God as he trusts in him alone, as the, on, as the only all-suffying pleasure of his hungry soul. So I want to ask a few questions. The first one is, what does it mean to seek God? What is, the, what is he talking about here? On verse 1, there's a desperate thirst, if you, if you notice that. Uh, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul 
thirst for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, biblically, to seek is to long for God. It is, it is something deeper than just you wanting to get out of your situation. And this psalm is intensely personal. Do you see it? My soul, my flesh, my God. He's not some God up there that created everything and started the world spinning and now he's out doing something else. He's, he's involved. He's David's God. Soul and flesh there. You see those put together? David is describing his whole being. Something is longing, is thirsty, in, deep inside of him. David has went from the cave with Saul running him to the palace at the top of the hill, back down into the wilderness. And, and ironically, so will God's people, and oftentimes so will we. As Psalms 107 describes this. Verse 4 of Psalms 107 says, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their troubles, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them by straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Look at verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. David has went through quite a journey in his life. The cave... When Saul was chasing him, I taught him to hope only in God. The palace taught him that God always keeps his promises. And the wilderness taught him to long for that which he once experienced. So that's, this is the key to understanding this psalm. It's the key to understanding this sermon. Experiencing God precedes a desperate longing for God. Experiencing God precedes a desperate longing for God. If there is no desperate longing for God this morning, we have to ask ourselves, have we really ever experienced God? David has. This biblical seeking is driven by this deepness, this deepness of his thirst, of a, of a longing for God. And the wilderness, in other words, the wilderness is simply a parallel, an illustration of the hard times in David's life. Whatever they might be and whatever they might be in your life, whatever they were in God's people's life. It's, that's the illustration, this picture of being in a, a desert place where there's not enough water to drink and you can't find food to eat and everything's a struggle. That's the illustration that we feel like when we're in a hard times. He said that creates something in the hungry and thirsty soul. It creates a hunger, a deeper hunger. You see, most people think if you look at the subscript there, he was in the wilderness of Judah. That this is probably during Absalom's rebellion. 2 Samuel 15 to 19. We're not completely sure. Most people think that's probably the situation. It, it fits in the context. Uh, David was on the top. And his own son led a rebellion against him. And he had to flee Jerusalem. He found himself again. On the run, a fugitive. By God's grace, God frustrated the plans of Absalom. And they all failed. We'll come back to that 
later. This is David's situation. It was in the wilderness that he begins to think about his God. It was in the wilderness that he begins to meditate on what it used to be like to be in Jerusalem in the temple with God's people. When he longed for that, he missed that. Psalms 42, a good passage, passage that sometimes we, we miss when we read it. Oftentimes we read Psalms especially out of context. Uh, Psalms 42, verse 1, says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all the day long they say, Where is your God? Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And so what do you see there in that about this longing? First, you see that the reason... That he was like a deer panting was because he was in a barren place. He was in his own wilderness. That's one of the reasons why he was thirsty. But there's another reason why he is so thirsty. It's in verse 4. That thirst is intensified in his soul because he remembers. You see it? I remember what it used to be like. And I will stop at nothing. To get there again. That's the thirsty soul. The longing soul. Even in the place. You see. It is the absence of Zion. You got to get this. Because we don't think this way. He's wanting something more. Than just the temple. He is wanting something more. Than to be back in Jerusalem. He is wanting something more. Than just to be with his people. There's all together. In what the Old Testament calls Zion. It was the hope. A God dwelling with his people. That's what he missed. That's what he wanted. And he would not stop praying until God brought him back to this place that he desired to be. You think about it. How much more do we know about the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of our eschatological future than David did? And yet we come to him to understand these things. The psalmist, we understand the Messiah. We look back to him. He was looking forward to him. We understand that the psalmist was looking for physical deliverance. But we look for spiritual deliverance because we have been given a new nature. The Holy Spirit rested on David, but we have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling in us as a sign and seal of our eternal life and our future glory. And we understand that there is a new Jerusalem to come, a new Zion, where God will dwell with his people. Are we longing for that? You see, this is where our hard times, our wilderness clarifies things for us. Because the truth is, we don't often, oftentimes we don't long for those things. And so the wilderness comes in our situation. It clarifies us. And he's asking, I'm still in verse 1, where's your desire? We've talked about this last night with the students. 
The biggest battle you ever fight is the battle of your mind. The wilderness blows into your life so that you can learn that we need to set our minds on something that we desire. Desire is not evil. Desire was created by God. Desire is good. Pleasure is good. God created it. He means for Him to be the ultimate fulfillment of it. God did not create something in you that He did not mean for you to be satisfied with. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It would seem... That our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. David understood this. He longed for what was best. And that was the very presence of God. Psalms 26, 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. In other words, the longing, thirsting heart is willing to do anything to experience it. Uh, some translations, I think it's the, the King James even says early. That, I, I like that because it, it captures the priority that that word means by earnestly. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if this is what it means, God, I will get up an hour early to experience you, to know you, whatever it takes. It mean, this word earnestly means to be out the lookout for. I wasn't sitting under a tree when I was lost in the woods playing a video game. I, I, I was looking, <laughs> sitting there going, man, I, I hope he comes looking for me because I ain't got a clue how to get out of this. It's, that's what earnestly means. And Spurgeon captures what we keep coming back to when it says possession breeds desire. It's precisely because we are fully assured of God's love that we seek Him with all that we have in difficult times. He says, communion with God is so sweet that the chill of the morning is forgotten and the luxury of the couch is despised. Do you long for God that much? Do you long for God that much? This is the question. Where can I find God? God's not lost. (laughs) But where can I find him? That's that's how we feel. Look at verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So God is not lost. He has not wandered away. But listen, I, I, I put that question in there on purpose. Because if I was sitting in your place, I was sitting there going, you know, I don't really like that question. You know, you're acting like God's lost and we're, we're out, you know, trying to find him. You know, God find us. Listen, we need to quit playing word games with people suffering. When people are in a hard times, that's what it feels like. It feels like we're far away. And we need to be, under, to be able to understand it and to identify that the psalmist gives us the ability, and we've been studying this for weeks, to simply call out to God and to tell Him how we feel. I feel like I'm all alone out here, but I will wait on you. I long to experience your power and your presence and your glory, but I'm not feeling it today. Where are you, God? He was in the wilderness, that's where David was. A hard, a barren season of life. 
Where does he long to be? In the presence of God, with his people, in the temple. Where the glory could engulf him. Where God would say, everything's going to be okay. So let me just remind us that our Zion is coming. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. David longed for that day just like we do. In the wilderness of our souls, stir that longing up. The person who is stuck needs to experience God in the past in order to long for Him in the future. But the only way he can long for God in the future is to be experiencing Him in the present. So how can I know this? How can I know that God will be the all-satisfying all desire of my soul Look at verse 3. It first says, because God's unchanging covenant love, he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. God's love is steadfast. We can understand several things from that. It's, It's eternal. Life is short, but God's mercy is eternal. Animals have life, but we are God's chosen There's a difference in that. You do not lift up man by lifting up animals. You simply tear man down. We are God's chosen people. We have a soul with which we long for God. There's a difference. God's love is unfailing. All other loves are are failable. But not God's love for us. It is steadfast. That's the word. It's covenant. He's bound himself to us. It stresses that it will continue. It cannot stop because it depends on his character. It is unstoppable. Isn't this what he told the woman at the well? John 4, 13. Jesus said to this woman who had lived a horrendous life, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. There was a well sitting there. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God's love is steady. It's unchangeable. And here's what he's saying. It's better than life. It's better than life. If I die out in the wilderness, to be with God is better. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Here's here's what he's going by. We all intrinsically, naturally love life. (laughs) I can tell you that that's true. With a heart attack and cancer, I can tell you that was true. I love life. I did fight for life. I am fighting for life. I will fight for life. And we will do anything to extend our life. Someone comes up to me in a little bit and says, you know, hey, give me your, give me your wallet or I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to hand him my wallet to him. If he comes up and I'm sitting there going, hey, man, you got an infection in your hand. And if you don't cut that thing off, you're going to get gangrene, going to take over and you're going to die. What are you going to do? You're going to say, cut it off. I want to live. 
He's saying that's true. What David is saying is there's something better than that. There's something better than that. Do you see how that reorients the way you live your life? The goals that you set, the things that you pursue, the things that you treasure? It changes everything. If there is something better than this life, and we know how precious this life is, then how much more precious it is what David is talking about here. It took David to be a fugitive sometimes to remind him that the best things in life, brothers and sisters, don't wait till you have some kind of a terminal disease or somebody that you love to realize that the best things in life, the, the best relationships, the sweetest pleasures of his life are fleeting but last for a moment. But being satisfied by God will satisfy you forever. And you can't contrive that. You can't work that up if it's not there this morning. It sounds like Greek. It sounds like I'm talking about something out of, out of my ear. No, David is speaking out of something out of his soul. Something deep. David is talking about the all-satisfying presence of God. And there is just something about when you have people that are satisfied in God with this hunger and this thirst. When we all come together, it makes a difference. Jesus longed to be with his father. That was the hunger and thirst of his soul. Do you remember in John 17? Verse 1 said, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the longing of the soul. To be in God's presence no matter what it takes. We know that God's Goodness is all satisfying. His presence is all satisfying because worship satisfies my soul. Now, worship satisfies my soul. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Worship satisfies. And what, what it brings, what he's saying in verse 4 is worship brings an outward response. External praise. It's a mystery that we use our personalities as an excuse to not worship our God. He's saying, whatever you have, some places he talks about hands, sometimes he talks about lips, some places he talks about instruments. Psalms 81 one says, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound a tambourine, the sweet lyre with a harp. Whatever you got, bring it to worship. He said, worship satisfies our soul. That's how we know we're going to be satisfied with him in the future because we are satisfied with him now. We're not some discontent Christian that keeps thinking that if God changes my situation, then I'll be able to worship him. If God just brings this, then I'll be happy and content, and then I'll be joyful. No, if you're not content right now, where you are, you have a worship problem. That's what he's saying. 
the experience of God quenches the fear of man and allows me to be enraptured in God and worship Him no matter where I, are, where I am, but especially when I'm with the people of God. I love this, this word next. This, this is a sumptuous delighting in God. It's not my word. It's, I'll, read, I'll read whose word it is. I just had to use it. It says, my soul, listen to what he said. My soul, verse 5, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Spurgeon said this, There is in the love of God a richness, a sumptuousness, a fullness of soul-filling joy comparable to the richest food with which the body can be nourished. That's really the question, isn't it? Is, is my time with God sumptuous? Like when's the last time you used that word? But it paints a picture, doesn't it? David said it's better than life. It's better than a royal banquet with the richest food. I would give all of that up only to be in the presence of God. By the way, in Revelation 19... We have a promise here. The angel said to me, write, these, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said, these words are true. We will sit down with him and we will see him and we will eat with him face to face. Sumptuous delighting brings with it. You see it? Verbal praise. Again, this is not something you can keep inside. I could ask you today, what was your favorite Christmas thing that you ate over the holidays? You would have one. It's in your head right now. I had a birthday. I'm a three-day after Christmas birthday baby. We had a lemon meringue pie, chocolate delight, and Oreo balls. And the proof that I used that in my illustration (laughs) makes the point, right? It was good. And when it's good, what happens? You just eat it and say, pass the chicken. No, no, you eat it and say, man, that's good. You know what we had? We went out to eat last night, and I had the best steak. Next thing you know, I'm going to the same steakhouse you went to because you couldn't keep it closed, your mouth closed, how good that place was. That's what David is saying, that, that if we delight in God, if we are satisfied in Him, that we will not be able to keep our mouth closed. We will speak of Him. David is longing to do that as a corporate gathering with God's people. And I just have to wonder in this age that we live in, are we ashamed of the gospel? As Romans 1.16 says, we're not supposed to be ashamed of the gospel. But when listen, when I begin to use my children or my job or my personality as an excuse to not gather with the redeemed, what is that? How can I know? That God is the all-satisfying desire of my soul. Because God has been my help. I know that God will be my help. Listen, this is what we've been saying over and over again. Look at verse 6. This is the blessing of suffering. This is what suffering does uniquely in our life that nothing else does. Suffering causes us to remember When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The question is not whether you remember. The question is what are you remembering? 
Psalms 42, 8 says, Day by day the Lord's commands and his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer of God, a prayer to the God of my life. Though my day can get busy and tempt us to just forget God and, and just get this day done, we are all laying in the bed at night with ourselves. And when we are laying in the bed at night with ourselves, what is your soul saying to you? Suffering causes remembering and it also causes meditation. That's what he's saying. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you. He longs for God. God has been his help in the past. And so he's going to be his help in the future. So even when he's stuck, he's sitting there going, I can, I'm thinking about my God. I'm thinking about what God has done in my life in the past. Knowing he will do it in the future. We're going to mull about something. At night, when you have a little bit of free time, Jesus was troubled, but he never sinned. But when we mull over things that we have no ability, that God did not give you to deal with, and you keep taking it up and keep rolling around in your head over and over and over and over again, you are robbing God of his glory. Because what we are supposed to be meditating on is the goodness of God. How he's provided for us in the past and how he will provide for us in the future. Not worried about things that we cannot control. Suffering brings God's power in our life. It brings his power that we would not experience if we did not go through it. You would not think that you needed the shadow of his wings in verse 7 if he did not blow the storm into your life that you sought shelter just for a minute just to get out of the bombardment. I just need him to cover me because I don't have what it takes today. That's what David is saying. He's done that for me. And so, verse 8, my soul clings to him. I cling to him like a child clings to their mother. I cling to him. Like everywhere mama goes, the little, bo- the little toddler's following him. Everywhere she goes, she can't even go to the bathroom. It's right there. That's clinging. It's nothing else. It's, that's clinging. He says, I'll cling to God. I don't care where I find myself. I'm going to cling to him. He is my defensive protection, and he is my offensive power. He's both. I was talking to the students last night. There is no superheroes in the Christian life. Only followers of the only hero that there's ever been, and his name is Jesus Christ. We're followers of him. He is our protection. We cling to him. And that's how we know that he is the all-satisfying power of our soul. Because God will produce joy through justice. That's verse 9 to 11. David experienced it. Remember our story? Most likely the context, Absalom. His own son has turned against him, led a a revolt. It was a large revolt. As a result of God's sovereignty in that situation, the enemies of David, some 20,000 men died, including Absalom. That's what he means when he says they will go down and they will be given over. It means God will bring victory. To bring victory in my life means defeat. For something or someone else. But he said, but. See verse 11. But I, the king, identifies himself. But the king will rejoice. We don't live in a never, never land. 
You know, we live a real life. David did too. He lived life sometimes in a cave, and sometimes he lived on top of the hill. Other times he lived wandering in the wilderness, and so were we. And God is all satisfying in all three places. And that's David's lesson for us in the Psalms. And we dare not miss it. So how should I respond? How should I respond? If God is not, if, if this is mysterious to me, if it's in there going, you know, that sounds good, but that's just not my experience. I, I, but I'm a church member. Man, I can write a doctrinal paper, right? I know my theology is lined up. We don't do that now. We used to give away church attendance pins. We used to hang all the way down nearly to the floor. And oh my goodness, we'd have people before they'd go to the beach, they'd stop by and turn in their envelope to make sure they, got the, they wanted to get their pin at the end of the year. Walk down the aisle and get that new church attendance pin. I, is, that, is that what all satisfying longing looks like? It's not the heart of Christianity. It's important. Our theology and doctrine are important. You know that if you go to church here. The heart of Christianity is not a, a set of doctrinal beliefs, but they're, although they were critical for us, they're, they're, they're not new activities to start and, and old activities to stop, though that is critical for the Christian faith. The heart of Christianity is to say what the Puritans used to say, to live upon God. You were made for Him, to know Him. To enjoy Him, to revere Him, to draw your strength from Him and only, to trust Him. Do you love God? His good old hymn wrote in the 19th century said, His, his oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is my hope and stay. David is not a perfect man, and neither are we. We're not perfect men and women in this. There's none here that is perfect. We've got no reason to look our nose down at anybody. But David is a man who knew how to pursue God, whether he was sitting on the top of the hill or in the furnace of affliction. Augustine says it this way, Our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. So what do we do if that's not true? Well, in Acts 2, Peter stood up and declared a message to the people who had hollered just a short time before, crucify him. And in Acts 2, 36, he said, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's what you do. You repent and believe. How can I satisfy the, the deepest longing of my starving soul today? How am I doing that? How should you do that? The, the point is, do you desire for God? That's the first question. If the answer is no, then you go back to the first point. 
But the answer is yes. But I don't desire them like I, like I used to. I've grown cold. Then I don't know any other way but for you to get along with God consistently and regularly and cry out to Him. It is through prayer and study of God's Word. It is through meditation. It is through the prayer of the saints that we are sustained. We are far too individual. This post-COVID, I'll just worship at home, is an affront to the holy God. It is an affront to His majesty that demands and deserves us to be redeemed of the Lord to gather and say so. No matter whether we are suffering, no matter whether we're on the top of the hill or in a cave, we gather and nothing should stop us. Not disease, not cancer, not criticism. Nothing should cause us to gather because it is in us and it will not be stopped. That's what you do. You stir it up in yourselves and you stir it up when you're together with other body believers. When we gather together, we declare this, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because we are looking for a better home and a better place and a new place and a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And every time we gather and every time we go to the tables, we're longing for that day. Why would you neglect it? We will not. We will not shut this church down again. We will not. Practice your own convictions. But we must gather and we must worship. Seek not to win arguments. Seek not to write papers and prove yourself more smart than the one beside of you. Simply seek to know God and to enjoy Him and to let nothing get in His way. Psalm 1611 said, You have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. So God, this is your word, and I pray that it has been a comfort to your people today. And yes, Lord, I know it has been. Because that is the promise that you have given to us that your word will go out and do its work. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And now, Lord, would you allow us to simply worship you, to respond in our giving, to respond by coming to the tables. Lord, we ask you now, before we come to the tables, as your people, as your children, that you would forgive us for our sin. We don't want to come to the tables in an unworthy way. We want to come to the tables in fullness of joy, remembering Christ and His person and His work. And know that there still remains this one thing for Him to do, that is to stand up and to come get us. And so, Lord, we long for the new heaven and the new earth. We long for that eighth day to where the the dawn will, will open and there will never be dark again. But until that day, Lord, we will gather and worship your name and we will scatter and do your mission. So, Lord, now receive this worship and encourage your people. Save those who need to be saved. Remove the shame and guilt from those that are carrying things that you died to remove. Do your work that only you can do. And we will glorify you. In Jesus' name. Amen.